This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Hi, everybody. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, host of Church Life Today. Before we get to today's episode, just a quick word from me to you. We just passed our second anniversary of this show, and I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for listening. And thanks for all the great feedback you've sent our way in the past two years. If you like what you hear in our conversations with pastoral leaders and scholars, please pass our episodes along to others. Everything's available online at RedeemerRadio.com slash churchlife or on SoundCloud at Church Life Today. And if you live in an area where your local Catholic radio station does not carry our show, call your station, send them an email, ask them to take us on. Now let's get to today's show. Maybe you're a little bit like me in that a lot of times when I hear about issues of religious liberty in the news, I quickly become a self-appointed legal and constitutional scholar. I care about the outcomes, but truth be told, I don't always know what's actually involved in a particular case. I hear and I react to summaries. Sometimes these cases have to do with the beginning or end-of-life issues or tax-exempt status or education— And to tell you the truth, I could benefit from knowing more and also from knowing better what is actually going on specifically and why it matters. The good news is that my guest today is someone who can help me and maybe you understand these matters of religious liberty a little bit better. Joining me, Leonard DiLorenzo on Church Life Today is Rick Garnett, professor of law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where he is also the founding director of the Program on Church, State, and Society. Professor Garnett is a leading authority on questions and debates regarding the role of religious believers and beliefs in politics and society. In addition to his many scholarly publications, he regularly contributes to several law-related blogs, including Mirror of Justice and Prof's blog, and he is currently at work on a book for Cambridge University Press under the title, Two There Are. Understanding the Separation of Church and State. Rick Garnett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you. So back in the summer of 2019, a lawsuit was filed in Indianapolis that rose to some national prominence. A lot of folks would probably be aware of this. Ron Colley Catholic High School is at the center of it because they did not renew the contract of one of their employees, a woman named Lynn Starkey, who had been the school's chief guidance counselor. And the reason they didn't renew the contract is because the school learned that Ms. Starkey had entered into a legal same-sex marriage. Shortly thereafter, you published an op-ed in the Indy Star that was given the title, because I know the way these op-eds works, you don't necessarily choose your title, but it was given the title, Why Lawsuits Against Catholic Schools Should Fail, because she filed a lawsuit against her school. So tell us a little bit, why should lawsuits like this against Catholic schools fail? Yes, I was trying to evaluate the the merits of the legal case, Mm -hmm. um, and I was making a prediction, I suppose, about how likely it was that the the case would be successful. And for a number of legal reasons, my view is that it was not likely to succeed. And, you know, my view as a legal scholar and a citizen is that a case like this generally shouldn't succeed. So there were a couple reasons. One reason is constitutional. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees religious freedom in in two complementary ways. It it protects the free exercise of religion, and it guards against government interference or establishments of religion. And the Supreme Court's always been clear that um, the free exercise of religion includes 
the freedom of religious institutions, including schools, to kind of set internal rules that are consistent with their religious mission that help to advance uh, that religious mission. And so just a few years ago, actually, a pretty big Supreme Court case, actually a 9-0 decision, which is um, always refreshing, um, (laughs) the Supreme Court said uh, in a case that also involved the firing of a teacher from a religious school that religious schools have a First Amendment right to select their own ministers, which includes many, if not most, teachers. And the, the court's theory was that teachers in a religious school are not simply involved in passing on you know, the three R's. They're, they're engaged in the formation, the religious formation mm-hmm. of the students. They help to transmit the, the school's religious mission to those students. And so therefore, the government's not allowed to tell a school who its teacher will or will not be. There are disagreements about how that Supreme Court decision should apply in some cases, but so far anyway, most courts have agreed that teachers in bona fide religious schools, even if they're not ordained or they're not in charge of campus ministry or something, uh, are often counted as, as ministers and therefore they are not allowed to sue the school to demand that they be hired or demand that they be rehired and so on. So that was the first reason why I thought... Not only in the Roncalli case, but in a number of cases like it that have been uh-huh. in the news lately, the Constitution probably protects the right of the school. Another reason is maybe a little more kind of down to earth. It's just contractual. It's that it's very often the case, and my understanding is that it was true in this case as well, that teachers in parochial and diocesan schools have terms in their contract that make it clear that they're expected to behave and hold themselves out and conduct themselves in accord with Catholic teaching. Right. Now, obviously, these contracts don't purport to govern everything that's going on in the privacy of someone's heart or home. Right. But they they are often explicit about certain like public activity that would be contrary to the church's mission or teaching. So a legal marriage would be a public, I mean, this is a public public action. right? Right. And that would be contrasted with let's say, somebody who in the privacy of his heart fails to love his neighbor as he should. <laughs> you know? Covets his neighbor's uh, lawnmower. That kind of thing. Exactly. That kind of thing. And then there's a, there's a third reason that's a little more technical. Having It's a statutory exemption, but, but the point here would just be that the discrimination laws that apply to employers generally, they tend to have exemptions for religious employers that basically say religious employers are allowed to take religion into account when hiring. So for... For those reasons, I think the prediction was that these cases were going to fail. And, and the reality is that sometimes these cases are, and I, I don't say this to blame anybody, but a lot of times these cases are brought for attention and to draw attention to mm-hmm. issues, even if they're not ultimately going to be successful. Now, the trigger question, you know, they, they used the word should. In yeah, the I was just thinking that. So, and, um, so these are some, sometimes these cases are tricky. I mean, I think those of us who care a lot about Catholic education, you know, on the one hand, we don't want, I, I, don't, I don't think we should want anyway, to give over decisions about what our curricula is gonna, are going to be on religious matters or who our teachers are going to be or tell us you know, who has to be admitted or who may mm-hmm. not be admitted. It, that would just complicate the ability to have a school with a mission and a character. On the other hand, I imagine that most of us who care about Catholic schools also you know, want to see our Catholic schools behave well and decently towards people and so on. So here I think that the constitutional principle is really important and that courts should vindicate it, and that whether or not someone agrees with a particular decision that a school makes shouldn't change the fact that 
we should all endorse the right of the school to be the decision maker. And if we think the school made the wrong decision, well, we can let that be known to the school or to mm -hmm. the relevant bishop or what have you. But in terms of our relationship with the secular state, I think everybody who cares about Catholic schools should have a should feel invested in preserving those schools' right to make that decision for themselves. Obviously, there are going to be cases where there are teachers at Catholic schools who are not Catholic, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're going to be obviously every teacher in a Catholic school is imperfect because we all are, right? And I think we also wouldn't want to create kind of unhealthy situations where um, people were excessively digging into people's private lives and having that affect their um, employment situations. But that does in these cases, that's not what's happening. Um, these cases, not only Roncalli, but others have tended to involve very private, public. I'm sorry, very, very public, public, very public things. So some of the cases are, are hard and they, they create some tensions and, and hard feelings. And a part of the time... I think the reason is because a lot of observers are very familiar with the people involved, uh -huh. and they might actually have great affection for the people involved, and they might not see the principle that's at stake, which is that, and we see this in other countries around the world, once the government has control over the selection of teachers, it's a slippery slope to, you know, say, telling Catholic schools that they, they can no longer have required theology classes. Mm -hmm. and down we go. Indeed. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, and you're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Rick Garnett, professor of law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where he's also the founding director of the Program on Church, State, and Society. So you were alluding to a case in recent years that in a 9-0 decision, declared that religious schools would have the ability or are covered in terms of their many of their teachers as ministers of yep. their religion, right? So this is the ministerial exception, yep. right? That has, in this as this case has unfolded, the one particular to Ron Colley, has also been called into question, hasn't it? Like, is this teacher a minister? And yep. she seems to be arguing that no, no, nothing about my job is ministerial. So who gets to decide who's yeah. a minister in a, in a religious school, in a religious setting? So it's, it's a great question because the 9-0 the case we're talking about was decided, say, nine years ago. Uh -huh. It's called Hosanna Tabor. And the court said, look, we don't have to decide now what the bright line rule that separates ministerial employees who are covered by this rule from, imagine, some employee who might not be. Because they thought in, in that case it was pretty clear. It was a, a teacher in a you know, primary school who um, was you know, not, not ordained as such, but was clearly involved in religious activities. And, you'd be, and you've had, you know, cases in the years since it was decided where they've asked about, well, what about the organist at church? Or right. what about the secretary? Or what about a math teacher in a high school? And so on. Again, the court in that case didn't tell us for sure, but it did suggest very strongly in some of the concurring opinions, which were joined by you know, for lack of a better word, both liberal and conservative justices, mm -hmm. they did say two things that are important. One is that the question whether a, a, an employee is a minister does not turn on formal ordination. It turns on more factors than that. And some of the justices were careful to emphasize that courts need to be deferential to the religious institutions and to the religious communities about this question. That is, we don't want to get courts involved in kind of the very um, intrusive process of telling a church who its ministers are. And that's been the way most courts have handled it. Now, recently, some cases out in California went the other way. You had uh, 
the federal courts out there in, in two cases involving Catholic schools in cases kind of like Ron Colley said, right. no, these employees aren't covered by the ministerial exception. Uh, and they were kind of outlier cases. And the Supreme Court actually agreed to review those this year. So very soon, like in the coming weeks, okay. the Supreme Court's going to have another pair of ministerial exception cases, which I expect will give the court a chance to give us a little bit more detail about you know how to identify who's ministerial and who's not. But I predict that that idea of deference will still be very important. And I, I predict that whatever approach they set out would be one that would still cover the, the teachers in these Indiana mm-hmm. cases. Again, you can you can hypothesize things like, is the custodian who, who comes in, right. maybe is, is not a minister as an example that's sometimes used. Although I have friends who would say that um, actually the custodian at, at their parochial school played a big part in their formation. Indeed, right? right, yeah. But the question is who decides it, right? Like that's that seems to be the key legal question here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one thing that a lot of lawyers are advising dioceses and schools to do is not to rely on cases in courts to make this decision, but to put it in the contractual materials, uh-huh. right? So that's actually in our Fort Wayne South Bend diocese. The contractual materials that are given to teachers in the parochial schools are pretty clear about how we think about the role of teachers and not just religion teachers, mm-hmm. but also, you know, if, if you're a, a math teacher at a K-8 Catholic school, you are involved in the kind of whole person project of Catholic education. Well, and the diocese spells that out. This yeah. is part of what it means to work in a Catholic school. You're yeah, part of the mission. Exactly. And I think a lot of dioceses are, are being advised to do this and, and will do this. But again, whether they do or not, I think it's pretty clear from the Supreme Court's cases, and I suspect it'll be made even clearer, that um, you know the decision is going to be one that's largely left up to the schools. Mm-hmm. So if it's... If it's plausible, it'll be deferred to. But I, I do think that as a, as a fairness matter, it seems to me that schools ought to be very clear to their employees that if if they regard them as part of the school's evangelical mission, mm-hmm. they should they should tell them that. Right. And they shouldn't kind of after the fact designate them as such if if those expectations weren't made weren't made clear. In that case, it's part of honoring the person who's coming in. As an employee, it's part of honoring their decision to work at the school. You're telling yeah. them what's what's expected very clearly. Yeah, and then it's a it's a two way street because right. um, uh, a teacher who confronted or not just a teacher, maybe you know, an administrator or something, mm-hmm. who's told, "Look, this is what we expect. Are you on board?" I mean, no one ha- nobody has a right to work at a Catholic school. They have a right to be treated honestly. Yeah, and if someone chooses to accept the kind of terms of the deal, it's reasonable to to hold them to the yeah. terms of that deal. I mean, it's an interesting, the, the, the who decides thing and the who counts question take us to bigger questions about, you know, what we think Catholic education is supposed to be about, right? So there's, there's one vision that would be, ah, you know, Catholic schools are high academic quality alternatives to to public schools or they're like prep schools with good sports teams right. or good college prep things with a little bit of um, sacraments and God sprinkled <laughs> on top, right? If that's your vision of a Catholic school, then you might think, well, you know, the only teacher who's really ministerial is the theology teacher. Right. Maybe. But I, uh, you know, my own experience with my kids' Catholic school has made me think that it's it's more pervasive and it's deeper than that. I mean, um, you know, the, uh, my son's football coach was clearly very involved in formation and very clearly, and I thought admirably, mm. um, thought of himself as being involved in the Christian mm-hmm. formation of these of these guys. Mm-hmm. 
and that that's that's good. I mean, that, yeah. that, that's what I think we want. Yeah. Now, this might seem like a strange question, but if this were a, a public school, not specifically the Ron Conley case, let's say, because it would be pretty clear there wouldn't be an issue there, but are there grounds for a, an educator in a public school to be either not renewed or dismissed that's not based on um, their performance, like they're, they're actually teaching well and keeping up with what they need to do? Um, there's no criminal activity. There's been nothing illegal. But in terms of sort of conduct or anything like that, like that, that would be in any way comparable to this. The reason why I'm hesitating, it's a little tricky because the relations between public school teachers and their administrators are generally like pervasively regulated by these union agreements. Okay. And so good. I got into union law. That's what I was hoping to do. Yeah. Well, and, and the, and the um, teachers unions have often put in place out, out of a desire to provide heightened protection to their members, obviously, you know, you know pretty, close limits on the kinds of things that can be grounds for suspension or firing or what okay. have you. So, so it is possible. And certainly, you know, every teacher knows that there's, there are things you can do that can get you fired. Okay. But my sense would be, and again, I'm generalizing across all these different districts and so on, that in the public school context, you wouldn't have something analogous to what we have in Catholic schools, which would be that, look, the school is involved, not just in education and even in sort of citizenship training, but, you know, in the kind of, in religious formation, obviously the public school is not involved in that, Mm -hmm. right? So some questions about whether or not a particular teacher was modeling the school's mission wouldn't really come up. Okay. Right? The situation of religious schools that are are open about their kind of formative and, you know, the the idea of inculcating the faith, uh, those schools are going to have kind of a different set of issues than a, than a straight-up public school. Because of the mission of a Catholic yeah. school. Yeah. yeah. This is Leonard Lorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. I'm talking with Rick Garnett, professor of law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, where he is also the founding director of the program on church, state, and society. So thinking about the, the issue of the mission of a Catholic school being so important to this and the formation, not simply the education in a, in a sort of stripped-down sense, could we ask a question about the mission of public education then? Is there, is there some aspect of that that it's also formational, maybe not in terms of religious formation, but in terms of value formation, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, civic preparedness and engagement or civic virtues? Well, so certainly we, we have talked that way a lot. I mean, if you were to go back and, you know, read the things that the early advocates in the you know, mid-19th century of public schooling uh, said, they were very explicit that the reason why we needed public education was to form people who could be competent democratic citizens in mm. a country like ours. And then if you fast forward a little bit into like the you know, 1870s and 80s, you know, a lot of the discussion was, look, we need public schools because too many of these Catholic immigrants don't understand what it means to be an American. And we need to <laughs> right. kind of put them through the Americanizing machine of public schools so that they will learn to have democratic virtues as opposed to these kind of um, you know, fill in the blank of the yeah. sort of various insults that would have been. Uh, well, that seems to, Catholics. in some ways, to have worked. Yeah. Perhaps, yeah. yeah. I mean, we could talk yeah. about that in a different way. There's yeah. definitely been an acculturation, right? right? And, and then you can fast forward a little more, you know, early theorists of public education, like, say, John Dewey. Right. Very much it's, it's what it's about is trying to break down prejudices, to separate people from things that um, kind of narrow, divisive views. And it was very much a sense that 
uh, in order to build a nation, you had to emphasize what was common and you know, self-reliance mm-hmm. and curiosity and critical thinking and all that. So, so for so much of our history, we would have had mission talk about public schools just like we do in Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. The challenge is, is in the late 60s and then after, we start talking a lot more about the free speech rights of children who are in public schools and teachers too, but of children, especially particularly with children. Mm. And that raises big problems because the fact is the first amendment does not let the government regulate people's speech very much in America. I mean, America has one of the most speech protective legal regimes in the world. And it's not a regime that really can work in the kind of, you know, it can't work in a prison. It can't work in the military and it really can't work very well in public schools. I mean, a teacher simply can't do what he or she is charged with doing if they have to treat all of the students in the classroom as as if they're speakers on Hyde Park Corner. Right. 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 So we have now attention because on the one hand we you know we have insisted that kids in K through twelve public schools have free speech rights and yet we also want to say things like you know we want some kinds of values of education. Um, you know contemporary public schools certainly talk about how they they want to make sure kids are tolerant and make sure kids celebrate diversity appropriately mm-hmm. and you know some would say there's kind of a very ideological aspect to that which is one of the reasons i think why there's often a lot of pressure to for, you know for homeschooling and private schooling and so mm-hmm. on is because a lot of parents are like look i feel like the public schools are becoming a little too heavy-handed with their mm-hmm. with their mission and they're not um they're, they're not respecting the the right of the parent to control and direct the formation of children. One way to think about this, you know, this old saw the, you know, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, and a kind of variation on that is the hand that designs the K through eight curriculum rules the world. Mm. Right? Education is not and never is a completely neutral endeavor. People, people care about what happens in education quite reasonably, and it's always going to be contested. In America, we tend to have a pretty pluralistic system for providing education. I mean, the, you know, most people go to public schools, of course, but even there, we are, increasingly there are charter schools, magnet schools, themed schools. We have a, you know, in this country, and I think this is a good thing in my view, that um, private schools do enjoy a fair bit of freedom and autonomy, mm-hmm. and we have some of the most generous homeschooling laws in the country. So we've recognized the importance of pluralism in education. Not every country has. What about like... So for those who are in public school, many, you know, many Catholics, maybe the majority of Catholics and their vast majority, vast yeah. majority, right? Yeah. Send their children to public school. And I can imagine as a, as a parent who sends their kids to public school and seeing sort of the things that are, that might down the road be taught in a public school as normative, that would cause a parent, a Catholic parent, a great deal of pause and concern. It might have to do with biology and anthropology. It might have to do with, you know, views of the world, economic, whatever it is. Right. As you enroll your child in public school, do you have the ability to ask for an exemption for your child from certain lessons, let's say? So it's difficult. There have been cases, these are the ones people hear about the most, uh-huh. where certain sex education programs that are pretty explicit, right? you know, parents have asked to be, to be have their kids opted out of those. And sometimes that's successful, but often it's not. And in every case I'm aware of where parents have wanted to have a kid exempted from a certain curricular feature of the public school day, like let's say they don't like a certain book that's been assigned or whatever, the public schools are generally not able to accommodate that. I mean, You're responsible for it as a student. You're responsible you for it as a student. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it from the perspective of the 
of the teachers and the administrators at a public school, it just simply wouldn't be workable if right. they had to kind of permit. Um, it's a whole a la carte, a la carte right. exactly. yeah, education for um, every public. And by the same token, that you know, your typical Catholic school is not going to say, "Well, you you don't feel like going to theology class, so you don't have to go." I mean, right. Some do that actually, but I think a lot a lot wouldn't. So I think, as you pointed out, the vast majority of Catholic children are in public schools, and that's mm-hmm. always going to be the case mm-hmm. unless we get dramatic change in our funding mechanism so that vouchers are available across the board, which seems a long way off. I, I don't see any way around the fact that parents are going to have to be kind of vigilant if they really want to, because the fact is a whole lot of formation happens during the school day, whether we like it or not. Oh, yeah. You know, and a parent could be as attentive as all get out when it comes to what's happening on Sunday or what's happening in the morning or what's happening after five. But what happens during that day is is really influential and formative. And the fact is parents aren't really going to have much control over that. And that's one reason why, as a political matter, this is contested because parents know that a lot is at stake. Now, a lot of what we're talking about has to do with the relationship of the separation between church and state. And I know you're working on a project, a yeah. book project for Cambridge University Press that is, in fact, directed towards that understanding the separation of church and yeah. state. So as we sort of draw to a close here, maybe I can ask, what what do most of us get wrong about that separation? Uh, that's great. Well, um, one thing that a lot of people get wrong is they think that the separation of church and state is an anti-religious idea that was sort of cooked up by the ACLU as a way to kick God out of public schools. Okay. Now, let's bracket the question of whether we think there should be prayer in public schools or what have you, but that separation of church and state correctly understood is actually a deep, deep, deeply Christian idea. You know, take it back to um, render unto God what is God and unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. But the separation of church and state correctly understood doesn't mean no religion in the public square. It doesn't mean religious people keep quiet Monday through Saturday. It doesn't mean that we can't vote our values. It doesn't mean that we can't evangelize in public. Properly understood, what the separation of church and state means is that the government doesn't get to run the churches. Congress shall make no law. That's how the First Amendment starts. You know, you think about what is the paradigmatic example of a establishment. It's the king picks the bishop. Mm. And separation of church and state means no, the king can't king pick does. the bishop. So that case we were talking about a few minutes ago, the Supreme Court case about schools picking their teachers, that is an example of the separation of church and state. Mm. And it's, it's, it reminds us that the separation of church and state isn't supposed to be, one image I use is, it's not, a, it's not the government's sword chasing religion out of the public square. It's religion's shield protecting its independence. Mm. Religious people should want the First Amendment and the separation principle there so that they can use it to tell the government, no, you don't get to write our creed. You don't get to determine our liturgies. You don't get to pick our ministers. Now, unfortunately, where it goes wrong is people will say things like, well, you know, if so-and-so, the politician, says, you know what, I'm against the death penalty because I've been convinced by Pope Francis that it's uh, not the appropriate response to even the most serious crimes— well, that doesn't violate the separation of church right. and state. Again, you're allowed to, we're all allowed to vote our values and politicians are allowed to invoke those things mm. as long as nobody's being coerced to engage in religious activity. So it doesn't violate the separation of church and state for the laws of a political community to reflect citizens' values, whether it's on abortion or the minimum wage, right? That's what people get wrong. They think, they think separation requires um, a God-free 
public zone. Yeah. They, they think it means religion stays in your private prayers or in your sanctuaries on on the Sabbath day. And, and that's not what I think it means. I think separation means independence of religious communities to kind of, that borrowing from the Supreme Court here, to kind of find their own way, to yeah. make their own rules. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to have to have a public book discussion or study when this is released. Well, that'll give me an incentive to finish it. That's great. it. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> it. You do that well of the public study. So Rick Arnett, thanks so much for sharing time with us today. Thanks for having me on. It's great. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?